I'm so grateful for the invitation. I, uh, I already told a couple of friends here that I'm addicted to MIT. I mean, I live next door to you uh, in a place where art for art's sake is still defended as the only way to engage uh, in, uh, in academic work and, and in, in artwork in general. And um, MIT always is, uh, is ahead of, uh, of our game and of uh, most people's. You're, you're an inspiration and a resource. So thank you for um, inviting me into this home where I feel um, more recognized than in my own. Because in my own, um, the crisis in, uh, in the humanities uh, has made people more defensive rather than, uh, than outward looking. So let me, let me start um, by rehearsing an argument that I make uh, at Harvard in, um, uh, in, in promoting this kind of work, which you already know about. And that is to go back to Kant. I read Kant seriously because my conservative colleagues were all uh, defending art for art's sake, the, the necessarily disinterested quality of art. And so I figured I had to read Kant. So I read the third critique. And I discovered that they hadn't. <laughs> they hadn't. Because what Kant says on the first page there is that he has to write this third critique, although he thought he had finished. He'd written a critique about science, you know, pure reason. And then he wrote about society, practical reason. And then he said, I, I still got caught up short because there are things that we need to do and that we do well as human beings that have nothing to do with reason, that are unreasonable and just as important. And those things have to do with judgment. Judgment is not a rational practice. It's not a rational faculty. It is different from reason. Because think about it, reason keeps you on track, right? Either you're discovering natural laws or you're obeying laws that you're putting together. But you're not free when you're being reasonable. There are right answers when you're being reasonable. The only way to be free, says Kant, is to think thoughts that haven't been articulated yet and in public. It has to be in public because you could go off in your own mind and not get any critique or, or feedback. But to think thoughts that haven't been thought before, it's very difficult to be only reasonable. So he tries to revive this faculty of judgment that Aristotle was very interested in. And Aristotle said only old people can judge because it's based on experience. It's based on a feeling. It's not based on logic. And Kant says we can't wait for that because we are uh, in the Enlightenment. We need to um, get a lot of people involved in judgment. So this is the way we're going to do it. We're going to identify it as an innate faculty, just like reason, just like imagination. And then we have to work it. We have to exercise it. We have to make it visible. Because hundreds of years of atrophy have made it invisible, <laughs> right? I mean, you, do you need judgment if you have a king telling you what to do? If you have a church telling you what to do? You just say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, and do it. And, and, and that's being reasonable. To exercise judgment is not such an easy thing, because what are we going to be freely exercising judgment around? Can you be freely exercising judgment around economics? Not really, because you're interested. You want to you maximize. 
So there's no freedom there. You know what the right answers are, and they are more. Can you freely exercise judgment around morality? Hardly, because there are certain laws that you have to respect. Don't kill people, you know, uh, be sociable, uh, basic precepts. Can you freely exercise judgment about concepts that we all respect? Two and two is four. You know, water boils at a certain point, freezes at another. Are you free when you're being a natural scientist? He says, none of those fields allow you to be free. Not economics, not morality, and not conceptual learning. Where is the only place in your life as a human being that you can get excited about something, you can get engaged by something, and not have any interest in it? Something that's not going to make you rich or famous or smart. What's the only thing that will keep you buzzed enough to want to think about it without any profit on any level? And he says, obviously, the only thing is beauty. You could stand in front of a sunset for minutes on end. Let's not exaggerate, right? Unless you're a painter. <laughs> you could stand in front of a sunset for five minutes distracted, knowing that it's not going to do you any good. You're not going to learn anything from it. You've just been distracted. You've been surprised out of your habits. And because you are moved and pleased <coughs> without any interest, you probably imagine that the person walking past that sunset whom you don't even know yet may be moved too if he or she stops to look. Or somebody that isn't around you but is seeing a sunset somewhere else is probably moved in that same kind of disinterested way. Once you establish an intersubjective buzz around something that doesn't make you rich or famous or smart, you've established a democratic lateral relationship with somebody. You don't have to talk to them about economics. You don't have to talk to them about religion. You don't have to talk to them about learning. You just have an interpersonal engagement with somebody who's moved by the same sunset or song or painting or dance. So the disinterestedness is absolutely basic to the aesthetic experience. Until that point, I agree with my colleagues. Disinterestedness is at the heart of art, the experience of art, and the experience of, of beauty and the sublime in nature as well. Okay? Fine. That gets us to page two, but it's a long book. <laughs> and I learned to read that book better because you need a lot of discipline. You need to be an academic to get through that book. He's not a great writer. But I learned to enjoy reading it after I discovered Hannah Arendt's lectures on Kant's political philosophy. She tells you on the first page, all right, he didn't write a political philosophy, I know. He says if he had written a political philosophy a couple of years before the French Revolution, he would have uh, spent the rest of his life in a dungeon because the, uh, the spies, the king's spies were, uh, were already alerted to Kant as a free thinker and uh, writing politics would have been very dangerous and he was a coward, he was a smart man and a coward. So he didn't write a political philosophy. And Hannah Arendt, the political philosopher, says he didn't need to because he wrote his aesthetics. 
How does the aesthetics work? The first stage is you get excited by something that doesn't interest you in that practical way. You assume that other people are excited by the same thing. So your subjectivity can be an intersubjectivity and a multiple intersubjectivity. Once you agree with other people on things that really don't matter but that allow for agreement, he says you create a common sense. So he resignifies, before we invented the word resignification, he resignifies the term common sense, which is usually, you know, knowing something without thinking about it. He says, no, that's not common sense for the modern time. Common sense is having a sentiment we have in common. Once we have that common sense, and we can look at each other and say, oh, you're an interesting human being. You made that co uh, comment about the, the painting or that comment about uh, the dance. You're, you're a smart human being. I want to talk to you. Maybe we can talk about difficult things like economics, like religion, like uh, politics. We can talk about difficult things because we have acknowledged each other as sentient human beings. <coughs> but the first stage of that kind of enlightened sociability starts with aesthetics. And the aesthetics allows you to judge the moment without preconceived notions, without preconceived laws. For example, I'm looking at a painting and it surprises me and that's why I keep looking at it, but I'm not quite sure what's going on there. So I say to myself, am I excited about this painting because it reminds me of an investment I want to make? Am I excited about this painting because uh, I know my Aunt Sarah would like it, and I like to think about my Aunt Sarah. Am I uh, excited about this painting because it teaches me something about a mathematical formula that I didn't understand before? If I come up empty on all of that self-examination, if I just am excited about this painting for no reason, and I find it engaging, I can judge that it's beautiful. That's the moment of judgment. So aesthetics for Kant is not that first moment of excitement. It's the second moment of judging that that excitement was freely gotten. And in that second moment, I can imagine an intersubjectivity. What happens, Kant says, when you don't get the intersubjectivity, when you don't like that painting, or you don't like that sunset, or the song sounds boring to you? And here's where he is so clever and so perverse. He says, this is when we become quarters, pursuants, seducers of agreement. He says, the ought in aesthetics is never absolute. In morality, in economics, in math, in anything reasonable, the ought is absolute. Water boils at a certain temperature, you have to agree with that, right? You ought to agree with it. In aesthetics, it's never absolute, which means that we become suitors for agreement. We have to cajole and seduce and, and engage people as people to come to agreement. If it weren't for that moment of being suitors for agreement, a man like Jürgen Habermas wouldn't have a way of talking about creating political accords among people who don't see eye to eye. Habermas goes right back to Kant's aesthetics 
in order to develop his communicative action. It's because we know that we don't have all the right answers that we can get into a serious conversation with opponents. <coughs> all right? So that's why I say that my colleagues who defend art for art's sake didn't get beyond page two because on page three and four and five, what Kant does is set up the terms of equality, the sociability of equality, because there's nothing at stake, at stake, and the opportunity to create accords where there's nothing at stake and recognize one another as active citizens. So Kant brought me that far, and I was already, you know, armed to talk to my colleagues. But then I remembered Schiller. Has anybody here had to read Schiller? In graduate school, uh, you know, years ago when I went to graduate school, everybody read Schiller. Did we read Schiller in the, in the, um, in the group? In the former group we did with, with Carrie, mm -hmm. with Carrie um, Lambert Beattie and a few other colleagues, we, we rediscovered Schiller. Friedrich Schiller, one of Kant's most distinguished students, uh, he's my favorite because another distinguished student is uh, Herder, who uh, helped uh, Nazi ideologues think about, you know, <laughs> earth and blood. Schiller was different. Schiller was made an honorary um, citizen of the French Revolution. He was very far to the left of, uh, of most of his classmates. Um, and he was a good poet. He was a playwright and a poet. So he said, Kant, you're terrific. I respect you, but you don't go far enough because all you do is stand around and judge what other people are doing. Life isn't like that. You know, in life, we do things. We judge ourselves, other people judge us, but we take risks and we make things. We make a poem. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. But, but part of judgment is doing a work of art, pausing, and then saying, how does this go now? Do I like it? Do I change it? What's the next move? Artists know that moment of judgment. It's disinterested, but it's purposeful within the artwork. And Schiller made uh, very clear that that needed to be part of the project of the Enlightenment, making things, new things. Why? Schiller wrote his letters on the aesthetic education of man in 1794. 1794 was when the terror was really at its, at its height. He started to write those letters the day he found out that the revolutionaries had cut off the king's head. He said, you've gone too far. You've gone too far. There are lots of ways to get rid of a king. You didn't have to cut off his head. Anything that was in the way of reason, anything that was an obstacle to the march of reason was simply eliminated because the French revolutionaries were sure that reason was the faculty of, uh, of free humanity par excellence. So Schiller, being a poet, says, all right, reason is an important faculty, but what happens with the passions? What happens with sensuality? We're animals with, with appetites for food, for sex, for success, for lots of things. We're, we're messy. So he says, medieval drama will tell you that we are little civil wars, you know, on two legs. 
we have reason, we have passion, and we kill each other, right? He says, but what, what passion plays, what morality plays, don't tell you. And what I'm here to tell you, because we're in modern times, is that there is a third drive as hardwired as reason and passion that we need to talk about. He says, there's the drive to be creative. There's the drive to play. And he coins this word. You know, Kant is resignifying old words. And, Sch and Schiller, because he's a poet, has no qualms about making up new words. He calls it the Spieltrieb, the drive to play. And Spielen in, in German is very convenient because it means playing games and also means playing instruments. Okay, so everybody's got a Spieltrieb. If it weren't for the Spieltrieb, uh, we, we would be, you know, killing ourselves and each other uh, at, a, at a greater rate. And he says, and this is really, you can feel this at the core of Freudian thinking, of, of, of lots of um, dialectical thinking. He says, thanks to the conflict between reason and passion, the play drive has to figure out a new form, a new twist, an angle, a product that hasn't been seen before and that relaxes the tension for a while. And then we have to make something new, and then something new. He was defending modern art, what he considered modern art, above <coughs> classical art, because modern art keeps renewing itself. It's never stable. It never answers all the questions. Classical art is always beautiful, and that's why it's boring, he says. And that's why it feels like an extension of nature. Anything that's an extension of nature, can it be really free? Or are you on a track? He says, modern art, because it has all this room for error and changing your mind and renewing itself, is the vehicle of freedom. So he says, what is our ethical response and our practical response to the terror in the French Revolution? What is our response to the effort to conquer political freedom in a frontal way, eliminating anything that gets in our way? The only practical response, he says, is indirection. You, you already uh, appeal to this, to the side steps, the sideways. You have to be indirect. Because if you're direct, you're already making enemies. You're saying this yes, this no. If you're indirect, if you talk about an aesthetic moment, if you create a new song, if you create a new choreography, if you create a new uh, painting, you get people to be delightfully confused and talk to each other. And in the talking to each other, uh, new steps are, uh, are invented. So I, I wanted to frame these remarks in terms of serious classical uh, structures, philosophical structures that we can appeal to. We are um, not limited only to the great models that, uh, that I want to share with you. Uh, we can talk philosophy and, um, and theory uh, and really put to shame conservative people who um, who don't, uh, don't use uh, the, the philosophy they, they say they are um, defending 
in creative ways. This is a work by Vodichko. Do you know this work? Vodichko decided he would end war by proposing uh, the encasement of the Arc de Triomphe. Mm -hmm. huh? And in, uh, in an interview, somebody said, well, don't, don't you think that's very ambitious? <laughs> he says, no. Artists have a lot of responsibility in the world. So, that, you know, this is the kind of spirit uh, of the people that, um, that are our models, including Vodichko. Uh, I want to mention um, Antanas Mokus because uh, he's speaking on Monday at Harvard, 6 o'clock at the Humanities Center. I don't know if you can see this image. This is one of the first things Mokus did. Mokus is a nerd. He is a philosopher and a mathematician. He was the president of the uh, National University in Colombia um, and lost his job in a kind of tragicomic way. But the city was so desperate in 1994. This is a city where kids didn't go to school if they didn't have personal bodyguards. Those of us who are old enough remember signs in, um, in airports that said, don't go to Bogota. Whatever you do, don't go to Bogota. You can go anywhere else in the hemisphere but the State Department will not come after you if you go to Bogota. So they, they elected, the city elected this um, very strange man, and he was stuck for the first month of his administration because nobody knew what to do. You know, the drug lords uh, ruled, and it was violent and chaotic place, uh, and he kept asking people, mostly his artist friends and the Minister of Culture, what, give me a good idea. And one day the Minister of Culture said to him, finally I asked my nasty father-in-law, who's a crotchety old man, I said, give me an idea. I'm desperate. I'm even talking to you. And, um, and he said to Mokus, and, and the old man, true to his character, uh, just offended me. He said, nothing to be done, kid. It's time to bring out the clowns. Mokus looked at him and said, that's a good idea. So the next day he fired 20 corrupt traffic cops. They were all corrupt. He just fired 20. And he hired pantomime artists to direct traffic with no authority. They couldn't give tickets. They couldn't mark anybody up. They had no handcuffs. They just shamed jaywalkers. <coughs> you see, this, this is a, a mime in front of a, a big bus. They just shamed people in very funny ways. Everybody started laughing at um, the offenders. Traffic lights and crosswalks became props for public art. And in one year, traffic deaths were reduced by one half. Over the administration of Mokus, homicides were reduced by 70%. Tax revenues increased threefold, and he built schools and fixed roads and did a lot of infrastructure um, that the city was desperate for. And he made the city a livable city. It, it's not in as good shape as it was 10 years ago now, but no one forgets that uh, art could change what looked intractable. No one forgets that. Right now, as we speak, I hate to say you're missing a really good talk by the now Prime Minister of Albania. Do you know uh, the name Edi Rama? You know Edi Rama? You want to tell people about Edi Rama? Uh, so, Mayor of Tirana, Albania, um, he had an amazing TED Talk, and 
similar tactics to Marcus, but using the arts, and in this case, painting and painting buildings and bright swaths of color to re-energize and reinvigorate a city that was in And now he's prime minister. If you look at the TED talk, it was a month before his election. Uh, and, and he shows you before and after portraits. It's like, you know, a plastic surgeon or something. You, he, he shows you the same city revived. And he planted 20-something thousand trees, dredged the river. And when he's... The TED Talk is so wonderful because there's a moment there where he says, we painted our first building bright orange, and the... Um, the representative of the European Union came uh, to stop me. Meanwhile, there was a crowd just admiring the building. He said, why are you stopping me? He says, uh, well, the color doesn't really fit European Union standards. He says, Albania doesn't fit European Union standards. He says, well, why don't you get something, you know, like a medium tone? He says, look, gray is a medium tone, and we're fi finished with gray. And the way he describes the traffic jams and the attention that that orange building got, it is as if he were giving a lesson in consesthetics. Surprise people with delight, get them to talk to each other, and you have a society. You have the beginnings of a society. So Eddie Rama is another one uh, of our models. For me, less interesting than Mokus, because Rama makes all the designs. He is a one-man artist even though he did fabulous things, uh, there isn't a sequel of art improving society. What Mokus did was facilitate a whole city of artists. Everyone on the street became a performer. Um, he issued 40,000 uh, cards this size with thumbs up on one side, thumbs up, thumbs down on the other. So you used them while you were walking on the street or driving or doing anything, you know, thanking a citizen for letting you go with thumbs up. Uh, telling somebody that, you know, they were really not nice with thumbs down. And people regulated each other. It wasn't the state regulating behavior. It was mutual and self-regulation uh, that, um, that helped to save that city. Uh, he, uh, he gathered the few honest taxi drivers who gave you, you know, change and brought you to the right place, <laughs> gathered them and uh, created the Order of the Zebra. And, and, and so great taxi drivers whom he calls moral giants because what taxi driver in their right mind uh, is honest in a city like this, right? But these moral giants got little lapel pins of zebras because the crosswalk in Spanish, at least in Colombian Spanish, is a zebra. So, um, and then all the other taxi drivers wanted zebras. They wanted to be identified as, you know, honest and, and decent and, uh, and uh, worthy of, uh, of giving you a ride. So he improved the, the, um, the conduct of the, the whole army of, uh, of taxi drivers. One activity after another went viral. His approach to, um, to feminism like everything he does is based on pleasure. Pleasure is something that we have abandoned as a social good. We think that modernity, that progress, means that we have to bite our lips and suffer. 
But now educators are telling us that without pleasure, we don't learn deeply. You know, dopamine is, is necessary for, uh, for deep learning. And pleasure as a vehicle for improving society is something that we have to recover. Um, so it was fun to, to play at the crosswalks. His approach to uh, feminism was to uh, announce ladies' night once a month. So instead of marching, take back the night, you know, in boots with placards, the way we do in Anglo-American societies, he announced ladies' night. So that meant that in a machista society, men didn't go out. They didn't want to be mistaken, you know, as ladies. And only the women went out. They went out to bars. They went out to parks. They went out walking. And the next morning, there were big um, headlines in the local newspapers. No homicides in Bogota last night, which was big news in the 90s. Okay? So this is, this is why Mokus, Rama in many ways, Augusto Boal, Gediminas Urbonas, to whom I dedicate quite a long uh, piece of, uh, of a chapter, both from the top down and from the bottom up, artists who stay at it, who know that what they are doing will change attitudes and paradigms and social relationships, uh, are our best resource for positive change in the world. And it doesn't mean that when we promote this, we are um, reducing the level of intellectual rigor uh, in the classroom. On the contrary, we're uh, defending that rigor where, uh, where conservatives would be much more complacent about ready-made answers. So I'm, I'm just going to stop there. Um, I, um, I would love to hear your comments, uh, cases that you know of and that I should know of, um, plans that we can make together because, as I say, um, I'm an orphan at Harvard. <laughs> They're starting to de decongeal because Col uh, Cornell University just announced that it got a gift of $150 million to do social engagement. So that's what catches their imagination. <laughs> and, then, and they're the ones who talk about disinterest. But they're starting to decongeal, so uh, I think that um, activities will be picking up. But please, I would love to hear from you. Yes, well, Jim. Uh, one of the, uh, you referred to your book in several places here, and uh, so uh, maybe uh, you could say a couple of things about how your book captures. Uh, I know there's a big discussion in there on Schiller, and uh, that's at the front, so is part of your framework for analysis and thinking about this area and this space. And your idea that the humanities are kind of welcome back, uh, which was your, your, right. your, your title. Right. Uh, maybe you could say a little bit about that Thank concept you. and the way in which your book elaborates on it. Uh, <laughs> one of the specific things I'm interested in in your book is uh, the notion of state-sponsored creativity. Yes. The role of the state, and because you know, many people see the state and creativity as right. complex. That's right. So, anyway, some of those are some of the things. Right. Thank you. Yeah, I, I call the prologue Welcome Back because I want to signal that the humanities for two millennia have been involved in civic life, have been obsessed with civic life. We've lost that thread probably in the post-war years and, and after the heady years of you know, the 1960s when we thought we were going to make the revolution of overnight. 
But since the end of the 60s, since 1968, we have gone into a bastion of art for art's sake in many universities. So when my colleagues say, oh, you're radical, oh, you're revolutionary, I say, no, on the contrary, I'm reactionary. <laughs> you know, I'm reactionary. I want to go back to a civic tradition. So we compete for the term reactionary. Um, but, but that's what I wanted to bring out, uh, that the humanities uh, from the classic period on, I mean, what, how, how did Aristotle talk about, um, about theater? You know, theater was a way to agglutinate people around important ideas. And if you read critics of Aristotle, it was a way to uh, defuse uh, a lot of rebelliousness. The catharsis was a catharsis from, uh, from rebellious feelings, right? But it was certainly politically engaged. Uh, Cicero came out of, uh, out of his um, depression and his isolation uh, because someone told him, someone came to, to, you know, to the hermit's uh, uh, place and said, uh, they're about to string up your Greek mentor just for political reasons. And Cicero came back to Rome and did his best or orations. His best speeches were politically motivated. Uh, Voltaire says, uh, don't tell me history about this king and that battle if it's not going to do us any good to think about the future. You know, so it's not the only thing that had been going on in the humanities, but it's a standard central line of humanistic development, is civic engagement. So we need to pick up the thread. And as I said, we have the theoretical, philosophical uh, grounding for that. Um, the way that the, the book uh, is organized is to say uh, in, in the first, uh, in, in this welcome back, that we have this grounding and that humanists need to catch up with artists. You know, humanists for the generations that I've known them uh, are busy saying that artists are you know, idiot savants. They do interesting things, but they're interesting only because we know how to interpret them, right? We, you know, don't ask a writer about what he was doing. You know, you know more than the writer. There's no appreciation for the artist as intellectual in that um, discussion of the, the trial and error of, uh, of art and the, and the theoretical basis of, uh, of making good art. And what, what gets lost when we don't respect that process of trial and error is the, um, the flexibility of the humanist, of the intellectual, to dare to make a mistake, to try something out. Teachers hate to be wrong. You know, they get up in front of students and they expect to be authorities and the students expect them to be authorities and when you get something wrong, it's very embarrassing. So this is also a, uh, an invitation to, as, um, as Samuel Beckett said, you know, try again, fail again, fail better. The, the, the slogan of failing better is something that I think humanists need to adopt as well, right? To accompany artists and to take risks, to say, I'll try this, let's do that, we'll, let, we'll, we'll, we'll see what in our judgment makes sense to, to continue. 
then I have a chapter on state-sponsored art. We call that chapter From the Top, with Mokus, with Rama, with FDR. You know, people will say to me, yes, art changes the world in third world countries. You know, it's a tropical thing. And I say, <coughs> you know, we haven't been studying the WPA uh, through its art work. The WPA gave only a fraction of its budget to the arts, but a very important fraction, because some people who've written about artists um, during the WPA said, well, you know, Roosevelt made jobs for artists because artists have to eat too. But if artists have to eat too, you know that they could be dishwashers and ditch diggers and, and, and plumbers and, and builders. You know, uh, artists don't only uh, survive because they make art, right? Why did the American federal government invest in artists when artists were almost all of them on the left? Many of them in the Communist Party, but the intellectuals were on the left. This country was at the cusp of either a Bolshevik revolution or a fascist takeover to preempt a Bolshevik revolution. We were on the cusp. And what Roosevelt did in a very smart way, and I'm sure that he was copying the Mexican model, was buy off the artists. He bought them off. You know, if you were getting a salary from the United States, you could write something critical, but not devastating. You could paint something critical, but not whiting out what the American dream was. Roosevelt recreated America as a destiny, as a desire, because it had died. The, the, the depression and, um, and Bolshevism on one side and fascism on the other just killed America as a desire. And what that little budget did was inflame patriotism again. In its, you know, critical way. But America was worth keeping. So that's, that's from the top. And it wasn't, you know, uh, ideologically clear what those artists were doing. But they were co-opted in, in a kind of gentle way that allowed the United States uh, to, to survive as, you know, uh, as it was. The second chapter is, uh, I, I, I call it press here because it's about cultural acupuncture. Uh, the idea of acupuncture in cities was developed by Jaime Lerner, who was the uh, mayor several times uh, of uh, Curitiba, Brazil. He developed the, you know, the, um, the bus train system that we have here as a, as a silver line. In Bogota, it's the Transmilenio. Uh, it, it's a model that's been repeated in lots of cities, and Curitiba is, is the first city. Lerner invented that. He invented lots of wonderful innovations that he calls urban acupuncture. You know, the problem is traffic, press there. So I call it press here, and that's where I, I engage um, Augusto Boal, uh, because you can press on um, theater art. Uh, as a way of identifying pressure points uh, and develop uh, popular theater, interactive theater around these pressure points. And I also engage uh, Gediminas and Nomez's work on defending public sphere as a concept in Lithuania, not only as, you know, as a reality. Uh, they, they did uh, an amazing job of um, just staying with an art project, 
long enough to change federal legislation <laughs> and get public space recognized uh, as, uh, as a public good. Uh, then there's a chapter on art and accountability for all the reasons that we're talking about. And, and that's dedicated more or less to this artist whom some of you know. Do you know Pedro Reyes? Pedro Reyes, a Mexican artist, was very skeptical about socially engaged art. He didn't want to reduce his aesthetic level by being a social worker, as he said, until he met Antanas. We introduced him to Antanas, we introduced him to Augusto Boal, and he changed his mind. And the first major project that he did is called, in Spanish, Palas por Pistolas, in English, uh, Guns for Shovels. And it was a buyback campaign with um, a rich collector to whom Pedro says, you don't need one of my statues. What you need is to attend to the violence here in Culiacan where you live. Uh, why don't you give vouchers as, uh, in, in exchange for illegal arms? In one month, they collected 1,572 <coughs> illegal arms, much more than pistols. These were machine guns, rifles. He says, you can't believe what people had. And they exchanged them for a voucher for about $500. They could get a good TV and a computer or a good bicycle. It was substantial. What are you going to do? This goes to your question about institutions. What are you going to do with 1,532 firearms? They gave them to the, the army. That's the only you know, legitimate place to give a pile of illegal arms. You have to give them to the army. But he negotiated with the army to melt down the metal, separate the metal from the wood, melt down the metal, and sell it to a shovel factory, where they produced as many shovels as there had been firearms. And now they are planting as many trees, 1,532. So this is one of the exhibits that he puts in galleries and museums of Palas por Pistolas, and it's, um, it's uh, the cover of the book. Now, the government, and this is a man who didn't want to deal with the dirt of, you know, industrialists and government agencies. And but now the government has identified him as a dumping ground for illegal arms, of which there are many in Mexico. So his new project, although I think maybe that's finished, but his recent project is called Imagine, uh, and later it was called Disarm. It is uh, a series of musical instruments made of decommissioned firearms. So just imagine, I mean, I, I, I could maybe find it, but you'll find it. Pedro Reyes, Disarm. Just imagine a violin made of four pistols and the shaft of, of a rifle. That actually sounds good. Just imagine cymbals, um, xylophones, you know, a range of working musical instruments, and, and they've done con uh, concerts with these instruments. So this is the track on which Pedro uh, went, in which his art is both visually and conceptually far superior to what he did before, because he took the risk. 
Once he said to me, Doris, you, you have no idea how much I owe you. I said, yes, I do. <laughs> I do because I, I, uh, I helped him meet people who liberated an energy there that obviously was waiting to, uh, to give much more of himself than, uh, than he had. Um, then there's a chapter on what I do as a cultural agent, which is very humble, very modest. I'm a, I'm a school teacher. I can teach teachers to become facilitators of arts projects for kids based on difficult texts. So if a kid doesn't want to read a sonnet, and we say to the kid, tomorrow a choreographer is coming to uh, help us make dance out of the sonnet, the kid will read the sonnet. If we say we're doing a graphic novel based on a physics chapter, they will read the physics chapter because kids like to make art. My, my colleague here, Ilma Paishal, and I started doing pretext seven or eight years ago. And you tell me that some of the kids who did it still remember. Yeah. So this is what we do. It's a teacher training program. Anybody who wants to work on it with us, you know, please talk to me. We work in Boston. We work all over Latin America. Uh, we're working in China and Hong Kong now, too. Um, so that, you know, I, I wanted to make myself responsible for some of these ideas. It's not enough just to talk about great artists and great political leaders. What do you do in your everyday, humble life, whatever you're doing? We're all cultural agents. So that's, that's uh, the fourth chapter. And the last one's about Shaw. I call it play drive and the hard drive. You know, how we, we become responsible citizens because we recognize our capacity uh, to be creative and, and the need for creativity to save us from self-destruction. So thank you for that question, Jim. Um, would you say there's a, so I, I saw a talk by Nato Thompson of Creative Time at uh, the Carpenter Center last spring. I was there. Yeah? Yeah, I heard him too. It was too. so good. Yes, I really it was. Um, so maybe you could just share your perspective on that whole um, field and whether you think it's in line or whether there are tensions, um, right. things like that. Right. There's, there's an important debate in the art world between people who defend the quality of art and the effects of art, right? The community-based effects of art. And, and one of NATO's themes there was, I'm not sure it's art, but it did an awful lot of good, right? And I think, and Claire Bishop is on the other side of that. She's worried that the, that the quality of the art, you know, is compromised when you do a lot of negotiation and you do a lot of repetition, and she's right about that. But here, I would like to insert the discourse of aesthetics rather than art. Because aesthetics is about the capacity to enjoy and to talk about an effect, not necessarily to judge the level of artistic contribution or proficiency. So sometimes there's an aesthetic effect uh, that's produced with a cliche, just because people don't know that work yet, right? I mean, you can show me something that you know inside out and it's new for me. I still get an aesthetic effect. So I think that that would enrich the um, the dialogue and maybe add, you know, a third position rather than keep it polarized. 
That's where the humanist can come in, rather than the you know the artist or the art critic. Um, I appreciated your your talk, um, and I, I'm wondering. Um, let's imagine a world in which kind of cultural leadership and arts is really imbued very deeply in civic engagement. That those two things are much more activated as forces in society than they are right now. I'm wondering, what do you think the resulting society would be like? What would happen as a result of that? And a kind of corollary question is, are there structural elements of our American democracy um, and American society? I guess I'm focused, I guess, on the US, although obviously your thesis applies to other places. Are there structural elements of the way we should organize ourselves uh, politically and socially that make it difficult to imagine that kind of full end state? Um, yeah. I, I think we can imagine um, a society in which more of us are engaged in art making. That's that's where Schiller leads us. You know, for him, the aesthetic state is that. Uh, and the difference between a state that's created by a great artist and a, a state that encourages all of us to be bad artists, some of us good, some of us mediocre is the difference between an authoritarian and a democratic state. That's one of, that's one of the proposals that, that, you know, that I offer here. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's, it's, it's an idea that I want to float and see what people think. Because, um, you know, um, Hitler was a great artist. He imagined the world that he wanted, and he got very close to creating it. But it, it was a one-man design. What happens with Mokus is that he sets uh, activities in motion and he's not sure where they're going to end up. And what, what Schiller was after is also this um, spirit of trial and error and indirection where we're all making experiments. I've asked political scientists, I said, can you imagine a dictatorship where everybody is an artist? And they smile and they say, no, not really. Because everybody's nonconformist without being violent. So I think we would do well to imagine a society where most of us recognize each other as um, creative uh, individuals. And, and about the structures of the United States, uh, John Dewey was very concerned with the very same question that you're raising. And Dewey is one of my heroes because you know here he is, the pragmatist of his generation. And as a pragmatist, he wants to make this democracy work. So what does he dedicate himself to? Education. Right? He becomes the leading uh, reformist in education. And how does he reform education? He brings us all to art making. He says there are two ways to think about art, as entertainment and as stimulus to do more. He says the only way you learn anything is when you understand art as the stimulus and the, um, the energy to do more. Uh, so I think we have a wonderful uh, opportunity, not to say responsibility, to use our uh, resources as educators to promote this kind of um, society. 
And I, it's hard to know where it would go. There are lots of structures that will stop us from being creative, you know, interests, uh, political structures. But if we're all nonconformists and try to figure out wiggle room, um, things might happen. Who knows? Yeah. Maybe going on from this, um, do you look at or what do you think of the recent uh, riots and revolutions and the art that's produced within those contexts from the Arab Spring, I'm most familiar with the um, Turkish case, and Hong Kong with the umbrellas? Right. Well, could you comment on that? Right. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? The umbrellas? I mean, what's um, the What's a concern, of course, is that the party can turn into another Tiananmen Square, which started as a party, too. Um, but I think that occupying the streets in that kind of friendly and creative way, making a presence long enough to produce the room for and, and you know, a need for negotiation. Uh, is a positive thing. Let's hope it has good results, but I, I think it's a very interesting um, phenomenon. With Arab Spring, I think there was much more, um, you know, frontal rejection and no alternative prepared. You know, once, once you topple a government, then what happens? I think that, the, that there needs to be uh, more design previous to uh, to a um, you know an explosion. One of one of my heroes is Gramsci. You know, Gramsci wasn't going to make the revolution overnight. He was he was not Lenin. Uh, he was certainly not Trotsky. Um, he said, "Italy is so backward that we can't certainly imagine an economic revolution." And we can't even imagine a political revolution the way they had in Russia. What we need is a cultural revolution, and that goes very slowly, trench by trench. He, you know, he was thinking uh, of the model of the, uh, of the First World War. You, you win a little space, that encourages you to win a little more, and then you win a little more, and you go slowly. And that's why a lot of Marxists think that Gramsci um, is not really a Marxist anymore. Once he does that, he becomes a reformist, right? But I, I, um, I'm a reformist, you know? I think that to, to do an Arab Spring, you need to have prepared other structures that can take over once you've liberated yourself from an oppressive structure. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question? It does. I was thinking more in yeah. terms of specifically the art that was produced. I don't know how much of it right. actually made it out of Egypt. I mean, I right. heard there was a lot produced there as well. I know there was a lot produced in Istanbul. So much so that the biennial in September almost thought of canceling it. You know, they, they said there was so much public art over the entire summer that they were... Didn't want to compete. They didn't want to compete. <laughs> and then they just turned it into a public biennial with no entry fee. So wonderful. So built Isn't that wonderful? The biennial. Yeah. Isn't that wonderful? I would just imagine harnessing some of that energy, right? Uh, maybe not in the official structure, but in, 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 a, in a parallel structure uh, to address particular issues 
and um, and get um, get a dynamic going around education, around sanitation, around whatever uh, services um, a legitimate government offers or should offer. If uh, if we had artists uh, actually uh, entering competitions to get local or international funding to promote this trench by trench um, development, you know, um, yeah, because this explosion of art, where does it go if we're not building institutions? But I think, I, I just think it's an incredible testimony to the, the, the kind of energy that we're seeing. Uh, thank you for your mention of it. Uh, and a, a responsibility to encourage follow-ups. You know, if if, uh, if the minds weren't connected with a whole politics of um, of, of traffic reform, uh, it would have been an interesting memory. But it actually made a change. If uh, if Gediminas just um, uh, helped to take over a building uh, and didn't uh, get involved in endless debates with lawyers and legislators, um, it would have been, you know, an interesting heroic gesture. But th there's something to be said about the slow, gradual gaining of territory from trench to trench uh, that I think artists um, can learn from, from these good examples. The reason that cultural agents exist is to put examples in front of people. Say, this is not impossible. You can be a, an inspired, quirky artist and actually make institutional change. Whoever. <coughs> you figure it out. I'm looking here. <laughs> All right, I'll go ahead. This is something that we, we do in, in pretext, you know. People have to figure out what the order is because the facilitator shouldn't be, yeah. Um, so my question is about sort of um, barriers to art or various art forms. Um, I don't know what we want to call them, but different art worlds, right? So not just visual arts, but other ones. But um, that these uh, different fields have a lot of structure within them. They have markets involved. They have credentials that you need to be involved, or at least that people feel that you need to be involved. Um, I think that you, you they require, uh, a lot of people are intimidated by different arts, um, especially visual arts. Uh, you have to have certain knowledges, and especially social knowledge of what's going on. So how do, how do we overcome things like that uh, when, especially in an age when like, artists are becoming business people as well, um, and that they're uh, required to, to not just think creatively all the time, but somehow make a living out of it, or somehow uh, make a name for themselves. Um, and when there's kind of like this big distinction between an amateur and I have to say that I'm very flattered to get a question like that, you know, as if I had an answer. I think it's great. That? But, you I'm know, like, if like you're, you're <laughs> raising this question, and if it's not a rhetorical question, we should all be thinking about this. Uh, I don't know when the answers are going to come up. But we should we should all be thinking. But we just we just heard uh, about what happened in Arab Spring and in Turkey. You know, like this this explosion of uh, of local art blew away the markets. 
you know that that that's that's an inspiring moment uh, if the purpose of art is to sell it's one thing if it's to get a rise out of people it may be another maybe you do both look, look you know one of one of my favorite chapters in american history is the uh, the act up uh, campaign people who were making good money in advertising and in visual arts in general during the day were visual terrorists at night and very effective you don't have to do one or the other or you talk to alfredo jar right he says i'm not one professional i'm three you know mini he gives a uh, little time to everything he says uh, i i work for i do art for galleries i do interventions and i teach and one of these uh, activities supports the others and the others support the one they they go together so i think i think we need to liberate ourselves from the um the uh one track careers that we're on i get a decent salary for teaching graduate students and i spend most of my time in um in public schools all over Latin America and uh, and in Boston uh working with great school teachers it it doesn't mean that i'm not teaching graduate students in fact that some of them come with me and they learn something about education so it, it's it's an important question we need to keep kicking it around but sometimes people ask that question just to say this is too hard we can't do it the structures are there and um that's that's what we need to get over but thank you for raising it yeah first i totally agree with you that people in academia should utilize their agencies to connect our with the civil engagement though i'm not qualified qualified to say this but but when you say that our or or a statics is disinterested or it is a way of free thinking then everybody who claim him or herself is a culture culture scholar may jump in and I disagree or argue that our what our war is itself is political and it my question is similar to that is that no matter when there will be some some group of people who is the judge who is the judge all the you know the evaluators of the art and the appreciation of art is itself political and making of art itself is political because you you must place your art in in the middle of some discursive space and even for today even if maybe we don't sell our art to some curators but we have mass media just like the umbrella uh, revolution when it came the the western media instantly picked right. that art and they are actively listening to any song any song pieces and art, any art pieces yeah. you know emerge out of that revolution so i how do you address that or is there a part a chapter in your book that talks about the discourse discourse problem in our world again this this book is about this thin a third of it is footnotes 
Duke University Press says nobody reads long books anymore, so don't even bother. <laughs> and I, I, uh, I want to raise some interest in talking about these issues. The questions that you're asking are already very uh, exciting to me because we're talking about them. I don't have answers. I certainly don't have answers. I agree with you that making art, because we're political animals, ha has to be politically inflected already. Not everybody believes that. But, but just getting into conversations about what we do when we make art and who are artists and who are not, the, these, are, these are urgent issues. And I say urgent because I'm, I'm quoting here Schiller. Schiller sits down to write about aesthetic education while, while the guillotine keeps going. And he says, maybe you think this theme is unseasonable. <laughs> That's what he says in the second letter. He says, <laughs> he says, but it's not. This is the only way we're going to deal with uh, radical change is going to be indirectly through artworks, through talking about it. And if anyone has one line about what we are doing, what we should be doing, what we could be doing, then we're, mis we're missing the point. The point is to make the conversations effervescent and to try things, see what work, see what don't. So keep asking questions and, and, and speculate and talk to other people and, and we'll, we'll keep talking. All right, I know you wanted to ask something, yeah. So, so I'm totally convinced and I'm gonna take up the trombone, actually. I've been thinking about taking up the trombone for social change and I'm going to now. <laughs> uh, but I'm likely not gonna be good If art is a powerful agent for social change, and I'm convinced, uh, does that mean that the most talented artists are the most powerful social agents? And does, it, does that have an, an implication for the training of artists, that it shouldn't just be an aesthetic uh, training, but also history, uh, you know, social issues? I, that's. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Um, you may not be the best trombone player, but can you teach other people to play trombone? Maybe they'll badly. be good. <laughs> but no, you can teach them badly, but maybe they'll be good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Ilma and I have done workshops where we draw and, and paint and dance and, the, and, and decorate cookies based on, you know, important concepts and whatever. I defend myself by saying I'm a conceptual artist because I can't draw to save my life. But the people in the room can draw. And I, I can judge. You have an ear. You can say, that sounded good. That didn't sound good. So the fact that you are willing to take the risk and sound bad in front of some people uh, and say, I know, I know where, you know where that went. Let's see how you do it. This is, this is part of what I'm trying to say, is that if we take risks, if we show ourselves to be uh, citizens and artists in formation, and we do our little part and other people will do better, we will get over the anxiety of being great all the time. That, that's what's choking me at Harvard. You cannot make a mistake in public. People don't forgive you. And one thing that we need to learn from artists is that it's okay. Schiller, as I said, defended modern art over classical art because classical art was always right. 
And he basically, he talked about Goethe, whom he admired and envied, as a classical artist. Why? Because it was so easy for him to write good poetry. It rolled off of him. He says, how free is Goethe? That's the way he dismissed Goethe. <laughs> it always turns out good, so how free is he? The sign of freedom is that you can make mistakes, you can sound bad, you can fix it, you can ask somebody what they thought. Nobody asked Goethe what he thought of his poetry. Right? So that's what I'm saying. That, that, that's the liberty that we take. Uh, if, if, if you are, you know, a mediocre artist but a great facilitator, you've done an enormous contribution to the world. Great artists, great artists are sometimes great leaders. Look at Mokos. I call Mokos a great artist. He calls himself a sub-artist because he has an agenda. So now I'm, I'm starting to warm up to this concept of sub-artist, right? Drama is a great artist. I mean, Hitler was a great artist, you know? Yeah, that's the worry for me that it appears that we, we want to make sure that we provide <laughs> but, but look, if we develop collectively a real sense of judgment, of aesthetic judgment, and we know that sometimes the judgment will be for a political or a moral reason, but, but it will also, because it starts that way, be for aesthetics, we'll know how to say, hmm, that's okay. Continue in that line. And any teacher has a sense of that, even if he or she can't produce it. So I'm all for... Uh, stimulating great art and and the, the texts that we use when we work they're all the classics why do I want to waste my time with some mediocre piece of writing when there's Aeschylus you know there's Garcia Marquez there's Shakespeare do you know what the tobacco rollers were listening to you know they paid for readers while they were rolling tobacco do you know this this is one of the beautiful Latin American practices that we're bringing back with pretexts. While rollers were, were, making to, were making cigars, they paid a professional reader to read to them so that they weren't bored. And this became the intelligentsia of the Caribbean. The books that they had readers read were philosophies, novels. Tell me why there's a, a brand of tobacco called Monte Cristo. <laughs> or Romeo and Juliet or lots of other texts. Just look at the at, you know, cigar labels and you'll get a sense of what people were reading in what week. You know? So we should promote the best of the best as readers and as writers, as artists. But we don't have to be good at everything. We just have to know how to judge it and stimulate people who are good at it. Yeah. You have to speak up because if I can hear you, barely. Yeah. So you We're talking to everybody. You opened with Kant, and uh, there was this idea that you needed to think original thoughts, but in public. And then I kind of tied that to Catherine's opening comment about, or question rather, about is art something that you can only do in isolation, or is it something that you can only do when you're immersed and participating? Um, and so my question would be, what's the role of the spectacle and why is it necessary to actuate a thought? Um, and then on the other side, what happens to the private self? Does it have a role in art? Does individualism matter at all? 
um, I guess that might be an American question, uh, but I, I'm just curious about what your thoughts are. Again, this is, you know, assuming that I know how to answer big questions. <laughs> I'll tell a story. Uh, so in answer, I mean, so I think this is a really interesting question about speaking in public. And so in programming, like computer programming, there's this thing called the rubber ducky phenomenon. And so this is the thing of when you put a rubber ducky on the top of your computer monitor and you have a problem with the code, and then you talk, you tell the problem to the rubber ducky. <laughs> <laughs> and it's in the telling of the problem to the rubber ducky that you realize what is your problem, and then you solve it. That's great. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Yeah, yeah. And and this really goes back to to the theme of um, of art as the conduit of sociability and 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 debate, dialogue and debate. Yeah. But look, there are so many modalities, and they they they're they're all important, right? I mean, you create something uh, on your own, but you want to show it to somebody. It's not to a big public, to a little public. It, uh, art is about communication. That's another thing that Kant came up with, and, and people forget that it was, it was his idea first. Art gives a form to that which doesn't have a name yet. Art makes visible, audible, that which is just a feeling. It makes it communicable. And that's why art is the generator of new concepts. Because if I can communicate it through art, we can talk about it, then we start naming it. That's the way new concepts get generated. But who says that I'm creating it in public? I just have to let it peek out so that we, you know, so that it works. Uh, you know Boal's work, Augusto Boal, interactive theater? He, he wouldn't talk about spectacle because everyone in the theater is a spect actor. There's nothing passive. You're a spect actor because after you see a tragedy performed, have we played forum theater together? We need to do this. You, you, uh, you, you, huh? All right, well, we, we don't have time, but we can, we can, we can plan a session. What, what Boal did, so here's just like two sentences about Boal. He was a Marxist theater director, got locked up in, um, in jail and tortured during the Brazilian um, uh, dictatorship. And when he got out, he decided that being a director was too close to being a dictator because you tell people to do this, no, not that way, <laughs> no, now you. He'd had it with being a director and he started to be a facilitator. Now a facilitator doesn't know much. You're just an excuse for other people to do things. So he would go to a village or a school or someplace and, and say uh, to people, who wants to put on a play? And the half a dozen, dozen people who wanted to work with him got together and he would say, he, he wouldn't say anymore, your problem is class struggle and you have to make the revolution, which he used to say. Now he says, what's your problem? Very humble, very modest. What's your problem? People decide what their worst problem is, and in one village it's going to be no drinking water, and in another village it's going to be uh, it's going to be floods. And you know, you don't know what bothers other people, so you ask them. And then they put on a tragedy because it's their worst problem; it's going to end badly, based on that problem. That's the first act. 
The second act is when the facilitator says to the spect actors, okay, who's going to be the first to intervene here and change the script? So somebody gets up, a spect actor gets up, replaces one of the actors, the actor gets off the stage a bit, improvises, changes the script, and everybody else has to improvise around that intervention. And all of a sudden, after two or three interventions, you begin to see that it's not as deadlocked as it seemed. All right? So that's a way of thinking about interventionist art in a different way, not just as making or as receiving, but as judging where the intervention can be and trying it out. Maybe it won't work. You try it out. You sit down. Somebody else try something. It seems uh, you're also thinking, um, which reminds me, uh, you're thinking collectively in a way that art can channel collective, collective action. I mean, it always makes me think of uh, John Ruskin's uh, concept of the Gothic and how all these unnamed people uh, in the medieval era built these soaring, beautiful structures. Nobody thought of them as artists, and yet collectively they created something that was uh, massive and changed society and had uh, a very powerful impact on uh, social behavior. So I'm just wondering if that's, you know, that collectivity is something that you're thinking about as you're thinking about many of these projects. Yeah, but again, I don't have an answer because some, some things are done collectively, some things are done privately, but they need to go public because that's what art is. It's a, it's a vehicle for uh, communication. Yeah, but, but yes, there are collective projects. There are explosions of private projects. Like the one, um, I don't know your name. Melis. Melis? Melis. Melis. Turkish or Arabic? Turkish. Turkish. But you know, the, the kind of personal projects or maybe collective projects that can explode and, and make a new moment. I mean, there are many modalities. But, but if we see a range of models, that's why I wanted to do top down, bottom up, this way, that way, indirect. Uh, we, we can recognize that this is yet another modality to make a contribution. Um, I think that at least some of our students aren't aware that they can make major contributions to the world, practical contributions, by being creative, by doing trial and error. Uh, and, and so that's what we can do as teachers. Just make it visible. Listen, listen to people who have experiences that we don't know and, uh, and enrich the, um, you know, the offer. Um, anyway, thank you so, so much for fabulous questions and for listening and, uh, and for making this opening for me tonight. Thank you. There will be a uh, reception down on uh, the third floor, so whoever is available, uh, there's food there and so forth. So, uh, <laughs> thank you.